BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick, with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, we discuss how our perception of reality dramatically shifts what actions we take, why you should embrace 2,000 plus years of wisdom to be happier and more productive how to stop judging yourself and others based on your achievements and root your identity in something within your control. We look at how to cultivate a more humble and resilient worldview, discuss strategies for cultivating top-tier mentors, and much more with Ryan Holiday. The Science of Success continues to grow with now more than a million downloads, listeners in over 100 countries hitting number one new and noteworthy and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to visit successpodcast.com and join our email list or text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, that's SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T. T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed the dangers of playing it safe in life, how we can learn to celebrate more, the power of cheering on, showing up, and serving other people, how to balance the acceptance of negative emotions with amplifying the good and focusing on the positive, what it means to live life in the front row, lessons learned about living life from people who are fighting for their lives, and much more with our guest, John Vroman. If you want to live a life full of joy and celebration, listen to that episode. Lastly, if you want to get all the incredible information in this episode, links, transcripts, everything we're going to talk about, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to successpodcast.com, hit the show notes button at the top. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Ryan Holiday. Ryan is a media strategist and writer. He's the best-selling author of over five books, including The Obstacles, The Way, Ego is the Enemy, and most recently, his upcoming book, Perennial Seller, The Art of Making and Marketing Work That Lasts. Ryan previously worked as the director of marketing for American Apparel, working on several controversial campaigns before starting his own creative agency. His work has been featured in the Huffington Post, Fast Company, Forbes, and more. 
Ryan, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having me. Well, we're very excited to have you on here today. So I'd love to start out with you know, one of my absolute favorite topics from Obstacle is the Way was the concept of, of perception and, and kind of the idea of perceiving things as they are as opposed to as, they, as we want them to be. Could you, could you kind of explain that concept and touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So The Obstacle is the Way is a, is a book I've tried to root in an ancient philosophy known as Stoicism. And the, the Stoics talk a lot about – they have this thing that's the discipline of perception. And so what they're really talking about is is the way in which we see the world changes how we interact with it. So not not the secret, you know, not, hey, if I wish for this, it will come true. But, you know, if you think that something is unfair – it will be unfair and it will feel negative. If you think that something simply is what it is, and it will be easier to deal with. So what the Stoics are trying to do is see everything objective, and they're trying to remember that there really is no good or bad or positive or negative in any, in any situation. It's just what we tell ourselves about it. And so I think, you know, look, an entrepreneur doesn't have time to think about whether something is right or not or fair or not or appropriate or not. It just just has time to think about what we're going to do because we have payroll to meet. We have employees uh, that we've got to handle. We've got goals that we're trying to achieve. So getting distracted about, you know, whether we wanted this to happen or not is really just a, a poor use of, of resources. And then I think on top of that, it's trying to then see the good in every situation. So what is the opportunity that this presents for me? What am I going to do with this situation? If there's some difficulty or trauma or problem, you know, obviously you can say, I'm going to reluctantly deal with this, or you can say, oh, this gives me this chance to do this thing I wasn't going to do otherwise. And I think this discipline really opened my eyes. You know, once you're kind of aware of this idea, it's so common to see people who are kind of trapped in a cycle of getting caught up in non-acceptance of the way things are. And they're so caught up in, oh, this isn't fair. Oh, this shouldn't be this way. Oh, I shouldn't have to deal with this. Uh, and that really causes a lot of sabotage when they're trying to achieve whatever goal that they've set out. Yeah, of course. And, and not only that, I think people waste a lot of time trying to figure out how stuff happened. You know, they want to know who's to blame. They want to know how this could have been, you know, could it have been avoided? They, and, and they're not looking at it constructively in terms of preventing it in the future. They're just dwelling on how they got to this point rather than spending time thinking about how they're going to get to the next point. And I think, you know, it, it obviously bears worth pointing out. Uh, there's a quote from Chris Hadfield. He's the Canadian astronaut. You know, he's saying there's no problem so bad in space that you can't make it worse. And so I think part of what the discipline of perception is, is, is not making it worse with interpretations or resentments or worries or anxieties. It's just dealing with the thing in front of you because that's hard enough as it is. That's a great quote, and uh, we actually have an upcoming interview with Chris, so uh, listeners definitely oh, awesome. have to look out for that. Got a fascinating story, and I think that quote is, is really important and, and really underscores why it's so critical to perceive things as they are as opposed to kind of as you want them to be. Yeah, exactly, exactly. They, they, they are what they are. Let's make the most of them. Let's not spend a second wishing they were otherwise is what the Stokes would say. And is that the is that the chapter where you kind of give the example of Amelia Earhart? I thought that was a really powerful story from the book. Actually, I I use that story in the discipline of action, which is okay. It's it's not just you know how you see the information, but what do you do with it? So Amelia Earhart was famously early in her career offered a spot on a flight that was going to be the first female transatlantic flight, except for she wasn't, it was basically all for show, right? She wasn't going to fly the plane. Uh, there was going to be two male pilots who were doing the flying. She was basically going to be the navigator, uh, which meant she was just going to sort of sit in the back. And so in, in some sense, it's a very patronizing offer. It's an offensive offer. The other two pilots were paid. I believe she wasn't paid. So, you know, you, you can picture her getting that phone call and you could picture her re being perfectly within her rights to slam the phone down and say, you know, how dare you? I'm not going to I deserve better. And she did deserve better. But that's not what she did. She said yes. She took the flight. 
she used the fame that this sort of token opportunity brought with it to build a platform, to build a, a name for herself, which she then used to do what she wanted to do. So I think part of this too is, you know, when you're offended by something, when you think that something is beneath you, this is also a form of judgment, right? This isn't taking something for what it is and working with it to the best of your ability. This is projecting onto it a sort of a deliberate animus, which might not be there. It might just be that the system isn't inherently fair or that the system is you know, indifferent to you as a person. And then saying, okay, all I need to do is get my foot in the door. I need to work with this. I'm going to make the most of it. And, and I think that's what she did. And had she not done that, where, where might her career have gone? And I share that story a lot with, with people who are just getting started. And, and it reminds me of another tactic you recommend uh, in ego, which is the idea of the canvas strategy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, early on in my career, you know, I think any young person, like, you know, being a young white guy, obviously the discrimination or the adversity that I faced would have been nothing compared to a, a woman trying to be a pilot in the 1920s. But I think any young person can at least superficially relate to being underestimated, to being seen as unnecessary, to being seen as less than. So, so in any point in your career, your career, particularly early, there are going to be people who don't think you have what it takes. And what are you going to do with that, right? Are you going to overcompensate for it by being confident, overconfident and make things worse? Or are you going to say, okay, look, I'm considered to be the least important person in this room. I'm going to work with that. And I'm going to make myself an important person in this room, not by my posturing, but in terms of what I can contribute. And so I think, you know, if you're an intern out there, an assistant out there, really embracing the idea of, look, my job is to make my boss look very good. And I'm going to be, I'm going to make myself indispensable in this organization, not by chasing credit, but by making everyone in this room better and, and, and finding opportunities for other, I said, canvas, finding canvases for other people to paint on. So is that finding articles for your boss to read? Is that, you know, staying late and, you know, doing extra research on this project that, you know, they haven't had time to look at? Is it giving ideas away to other people inside the company that they can take credit for? Is it bringing them potential clients or projects or opportunities or introducing them to new things that you as a young person might have, you know, insight into that an older person might not? You know, what it, what are the things that nobody else in the organization wants to do that you are willing to do? And sort of building up your credibility and your skills that way, not by trying to get credit, by, but in some ways by deliberately giving credit away. And I think there's a corollary to that as well. When you think about taking responsibility for something, you know, so often people think, oh, I need to deflect the blame. I need to make sure that I don't get caught up in this. When in reality, counterintuitively, often taking responsibility, taking the blame for when things go wrong is really one of the most powerful things that you can do. Yeah. Yeah. I would think that's true. Also, you know, it's, it's, Look, early on in your career, it's it's accepting that your role is to deal with and take the heat for stuff that other people don't want to have to do. That that's that's part of the job. And if you can embrace that, if you can do the things that other people don't want to do, then all of a sudden people are going to start to lean on you, they're going to send you stuff, they're going to start to see what you have. Nobody's going to hand you the position you magically want. I think you have to earn it. So another another topic from Obstacle that I found really interesting, I mean, in many ways, is kind of the core thesis of the book. Talk a little bit about how, how should we approach dealing with setbacks? Well, I think this goes to the discipline of perception a little bit as well. Obviously, it, it's, you know, are you going to see this as this thing that you have to put up with? Are you going to see this as this thing that's, you know, very unfortunate? Are you going to see this as a setback? Or are you instead going to see it as an opportunity of, of, of one kind or another? You know, Marcus Aurelius, who's probably the most famous of the Stoics, he, he has this line. He says, the impediment to action advances action when stands in the way, becomes the way. And what he really means is that everything that happens, whether it's a person being rude to you or a flight that's been delayed or a piece of legislation that's been, you know, that, that's been that, that failed to pass. This is negative in the sense that it's not what you wanted to happen, but it's positive if you decide that it then 
provides an opportunity for you to do something, whether that's teach someone something, whether that's even just practicing forgiveness or acceptance, that everything that happens, we have the ability with our minds to change what that means to us. Uh, Andy Grove, who was the, the CEO of Intel for many years, he would say, you know, bad companies are destroyed by crisis, good companies survive them, and great companies are improved by them. And that's sort of the stoic mindset, right, is, is that so setbacks make some people worse, some people, you know, tough it out, and then other people go, oh, this is actually great because now I can do X, Y, or Z. And so that that's the sort of stoic optimism that I really find inspiring. It's, it's not saying, oh, hey, everything's awesome, but it's saying, hey, this presents to me an opportunity to do something that might be awesome, that, that had things gone my original way, I wouldn't have been able to do. Tell me a little bit about, in, in ego, you talk about the distinction between being and doing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, we're really talking about the difference between appearance and reality or or sort of posturing and and being the real deal. There's a speech that John Boyd, he was a, a great fighter pilot and then sort of a, a groomer of talent in the Pentagon for many years. He would give this speech to, to young up and comers. He would say, you know, you're going to come to a fork in the road. And the fork in the road is, he would say, it's to be or to do. And so, look, you can be someone who chases rank, he was saying. You could be someone who sucks up to your superior officers. You could be the kind of person that, you know, rubber stamps the right projects or tells people what they want to hear. Or you could be someone who dedicates themselves to the truth, to a larger cause, to serving your country in a way that might not be rewarded by rank, but it's the right thing to do. In a Boyd's career was an example of this. You know, I would guess 98% of the people listening to this have never heard who he is, um, but he's arguably the most important strategist in the armed forces in the latter 20th century. You know, he shepherded through the F, shepherded through the F-15 and the F-16. He was instrumental in the the, the strategy of the first Gulf War. You know, he's now taught in all these different war colleges. But he, what he was looking at doing is the right thing. He didn't care if that pissed people off. He didn't care if he killed people's pet projects. He didn't he didn't care if, you know, he didn't get promoted. What he cared about was the work, was doing good work. And so I think, you know, we, we all have a fork in our own careers that's similar to that. You know, are you going to be the person who pretends to be an internet millionaire uh, and sells this bogus lifestyle? Or are you going to be someone who actually builds something that matters? You know, are you going to chase being a bestseller or are you going to chase someone? Are you going to chase writing books that have real impact? You know, are you going to chase some meaningless job on Wall Street or are you going to try to make a difference in people's lives? Right. What are, what are you going to do? And that choice, I think a lot of people make unknowingly, like they, they're not conscious of that fork. So they just gravitate towards what pays better, you know, what seems to get the most recognition. And then they end up one day wondering, you know, where all the time went and why they haven't done anything important. And, and it's just something I think everyone needs to be aware of is what, what path are you on in life? Are you, are you the person who is being important or are you doing important things? I think that's the that's the question. And in many ways, that distinction reminded me of the distinction between the fixed mindset and the growth mindset that Carol Dweck talks about and kind of the idea that if, if you're sort of in a fixed mindset world, it's all about proving and demonstrating how awesome you are. Uh, but when you're sort of in a growth mindset place, in many ways, you're focused on getting better, improving, you know, kind of concrete development and growth. I, I guess they're similar. I mean, I don't know. Uh, to me, that what Carol Dweck is talking about is the difference between sort of being smart and working hard, right? You know, if you think you're smart because someone said you're smart, I guess that's one thing. If you think that you're you work really hard and you're learning and you're getting better, one of those attitudes might might look better on the surface, but the other attitude, it's like the, the other attitude over time is going to bear greater fruit. And so, yeah, you've got to decide which, which of those people you're going to be. Are you going to chase sort of superficial recognition or are you going to chase doing real work? 
That makes me think a little bit as well about another concept. You, I think you call it humbleness and in, in ego, but it's the idea of how do we untangle success from, from our own kind of identity and, and how do we not fall into the trap of judging people based on their achievements? Yeah, look, I think. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. One of the most insidious parts of our culture is thinking that the things that we've done say say something about it us as a person, good or bad, right? So if you think that the fact that you can afford a nice car says that you're successful and important, you're going to feel great when you have that nice car. But if that car gets repossessed, if you have to sell it because you're investing in a new company or something, now all of a sudden you don't, you don't feel the same way, but you're the same person. The only thing that changes is what car you drive, right? So if you think that, you know, you're doing awesome because your company's doing awesome. Well, what happens when the market shifts, or what happens if you know Google decides that it's gonna it's gonna come into your market and replace you? These are the, the reality is that the world can sort of turn on a dime. The best laid plans, you know, as we know, can be turned to nothing very quickly. And so, you know, these things don't change us. The difference between first class and coach on an airline, other than price, is just is nothing. They're just chairs on an airplane. And so you you want you want to be able to you you want to be able to measure yourself not by this sort of external scorecard of uh, accomplishment or recognition or achievement. You want to be able to to measure yourself based on on what went into them because that's the really the only part of that equation that you control, right? You know, I, I I wrote this new book. I think it's great. I think it's my one of my best books. But I could die before it comes out, or there could be a natural disaster the week that it comes out, and it could get no recognition. Or Malcolm Gladwell could write a book on with the same title, and no one would care about my book, right? So th these are all these things that could happen that, you know, before it came out, when it was still in my control, I was quite proud of it. And I, I, I knew that I did a good job. But then if I let these sort of external metrics decide whether it was good or not, I, I've now taken my confidence and my happiness and my my identity and put them out in to other people's hands and that sets us up to be disappointed it sets us up to feel less than you know it's just not a great position to be in so how do we anchor our our identities and our self-worth on that more stable footing i mean you've got to you've got to decide what's important to you you know what and and ideally you want to root it in the things that you control so again it's to you take a book and actually obstacle is the way was a good example when when the obstacle is the way came out it did okay, you know, it, it sold all right, but it, it was nowhere near what it's become in the subsequent few years. So if I only felt good about it selling a certain number of copies, I would have been, I would have found that the, the book was a failure for quite some time. But really the book hasn't changed, right? The book, the book is the same book from when I finished it a year before it came out to the day that it came out to flash forward years later and it sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies, nothing has changed. I haven't changed, the, the words on the page haven't changed. So so those are really the the what I should be focused on then, what what you want, what you want your sense of good or bad or positive or negative to be rooted in is the part of it you control. I controlled the amount of work that went into it. I controlled the ideas within it. I controlled you know, the amount of, of time I made for it. I control those things. What I don't control is what critics say. I don't ultimately control how many copies it sold or how much money it makes or that, you know, this important person or that important person liked it. So you, you almost have to be, the Stokes would say you're indifferent to those things. Not that you, um, you don't want them, but it, 
it's nice to have them, but you're fine if they went away too. And, and look, that's not easy to do. Uh, I wasn't exactly happy that the book didn't hit the bestseller list the week it came out or the weeks in the weeks since I would have liked for that to have happened, but that it didn't happen was okay because I was able to root my judgment of the book in the fact that I knew that it was the best thing that I was capable of at that time. In, in ego, you also talk about the idea of entitlement. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, I, I don't know what you mean specifically, but, but I, I think in, in the, related to what we're just talking about is a lot of people think they're entitled to the the parts of the labor that aren't theirs right they they think that they're entitled to everyone liking them or everyone telling them that they're awesome or they're entitled to being in control of the universe other people's opinions it's like you, you see this with very egotistical people you know you you even see this with Trump it's like he doesn't get that people are allowed to not like him. It, it so deeply bothers him and he's so used to being in control of everything that he that he ends up wasting incredible amounts of time and energy and actually ends up making things worse for himself trying to control these things that are inherently outside of his control. And so I think part of ego is just believing that the universe is revolving around you and that it responds to your wants and needs. I think a more humble but more resilient approach is realizing that, look, you're a tiny fleck in this universe and that it's on you to make it what you want it to be within your sort of limitations as a human being. And, and I think this is true as a creative too. Again, you are entitled to the work. You're not entitled to what comes to, to anything past that you're not entitled to any results that that's that's uh where you are at the you the, at the mercy of of these larger forces and, and that's inherently humbling do you think that there's and you touched earlier on the idea of stoic opposite optimism when i you know after i kind of read obstacle and, and i'm naturally sort of a very pessimistic person i always think about all of the things that can go wrong and the ways that can go wrong do you think there's a danger within stoicism of getting too focused on the negative well i the, the stoics aren't don't believe in a negative right they they're they're saying you they want to look at all possibilities but that all the possibilities are the same that neither there's no good possibilities and there's no bad possibilities there's just potential outcomes in a given situation so i think look there's a, there's pessimism pessimism is always looking at what could go wrong and then despairing because it can go wrong a stoic is instead saying look i'm going to launch this company and it could be successful it also could fail and I could lose all the money that I put into it, but that's not going to stop me from trying. I still think that I, I still think that my odds are better of success than failure. So I'm going to push through and I'm going to put everything that I can towards doing so. And then if it does, if it does start to look like it's going to fail, here are all the things that I can do to prevent that. Here's all the, here's all the options that I have since I've thought about it in advance that I can try to plan for those contingencies. So I think there's pessimistic people and I think those people are not happy and it, there's there's uh, anxiety and worry in that pessimism. That's not what stoicism is supposed to be about. Stoicism is thinking about the worst case scenario so it doesn't catch you by surprise. Also, so you can plan for it or plan around it or prevent it. And so the, the the optimism and stoicism is that it proceeds anyway. It proceeds despite the odds or despite the dangers or risks. Um, and it goes into them, not blindly, but with, with, with one's eyes wide open. I think that's a great point. The idea that there's, there's not good or bad outcomes. There are only outcomes and we need to think. Yeah. About I mean, the, the stoics would say there is no good or bad. There's only perception. There's just how we see things. And, and think about it. Look, what you would see as a bad outcome, somebody else might see as heaven on earth, right? Like, like you failing at a business to someone in the third world, they would kill just to get where you think failure is. So these things are all relative and subjective. And we should remind ourselves of that. 
And if, if we can strip that comparison out of the equation, we can see that there are just outcomes, period. Some are probably more desirable than others, and some probably present more options than others. But at the end of the day, when you know your company fails, you know, whether you believe in God or whether you believe in some, you know, chance or fate, the world isn't saying this is happening to you because it's bad. The world, it's just happening. It just, it just is in, is an event. It's what human, like when, uh, when a tree falls or when a person dies or when you get a year older, these are just facts of the universe they're not good or bad it's it's human beings who dis, who try to put them in categories and then feel stressed and unhappy because of those categories so where do you think people go wrong when they try to concretely implement stoicism into their lives well i say in the book you know that all this is very simple but that doesn't mean that it's easy so look i i, I can say what i just said and 20 minutes from now someone could call me a name and it objectively that name is just a word right you know there's no difference between this word or that word it doesn't change who you are and it doesn't mean that it's true or not but that's simple right it's pretty straightforward it's logical but that in the moment when someone calls you an asshole that doesn't you know, you you want to react. And so I think the hard work with stoicism is is the practice of it, not just like the practice, like doing it. But can you practice it? Can this be something that you get a little bit better at every day? I'd like to think that I am. But, you know, s stuff still bothers me. Uh, it's always going to bother me. But hopefully it bothers me a little bit less every day. I'd love to kind of transition now and talking about your your new book, The Perennial Seller. One of the core ideas from that book is the notion that you shouldn't distinguish between the making of something and the marketing of it. Tell me about that. Well, I I think a, a lot of people creatively, and I know this sounds very different than what the, the so so called important topics we were just talking about, but you know, I've tried to write books that are going to stand the test of time. I've I've tried to write books that whether or not they appear on the bestseller list are going to sell well every single week. I, I want to create things that last, that have that help people, that work regardless of trends or current events. And, and part of the reason that a lot of creative work doesn't do that is that people go off in a cave and they make things and then they try to figure out after how to make it. Or somebody decides, I want to have a podcast, and then they make a podcast, and then they go, how do I get listeners for this podcast? They don't think about it as a as one. They think about it as separate problems rather than the same problem, and that in a weird way, getting the audience or getting the attention for it matters as much, if not more, than how you made it. Because if you can't have one, the effort that went into the the other was somewhat poorly spent. I think that makes a ton of sense. And, and, and you have a couple of examples from the book, Shawshank Redemption, 48 Laws of Power. Share, would you share one of those stories? Yeah, I mean, look, you, Robert Greene, who wrote The 48 Laws of Power, you, you, he was my mentor. I was his research assistant for a number of years. Look, that, that book could have been, that book was written in the mid-90s. That book could have been rooted in current events. It could have talked about the Clintons. It could have talked about, you know, television shows that were on at the time. It could have talked about all these things. But instead, Robert wrote a very timeless book about power. And he wrote a book about power that wasn't designed for your typical business executive. It was very pragmatic and ruthless. And he, he says that it's amoral, meaning that it's not judging good or bad about the strategies. And the result was he's created this timeless book that's unlike anything else in the field. It, it, you know, the, its closest equivalent is probably Machiavelli's The Prince, which was written 500 years before. So what in a way, you know, he, he's done very little marketing for the book because the book is the marketing. It, when people read it, it's so refreshingly 
provocative and bold that you go, you got to read this book. It is made, the, the book is the marketing in many ways. And it's also designed to be timeless, right? Again, it's not, it didn't, even though it's 20 years old, it doesn't feel dated. If, if you could have written it yesterday, you could have written it 20 years from now, it would still be the same value. Um, you know, part of the reason to I've rooted my books in ancient philosophy is that I know I I know that I've thought about the things that I've thought for a decade or two decades. I know that ancient philosophy has worked for thousands of years. So what am I going to bet on? Something that that occurred to me when I was 25, or am I going to bet on something that somebody else came up with? 2,500 years ago. And so rooting your work in timeless principles is really, really important. And you were, you were pretty young when Robert Greene, I guess when he became your mentor, right? Yeah, I was uh, 19 or 20. How did you develop that relationship or why, you know, how did he become your, your mentor at such a young age? Well, I think become is the operative word there, right? There wasn't like this day where I was anointed you know, it wasn't like some ceremony or swearing in, you know, I worked for someone who worked on his website. And then Robert and I started talking, I started working on his projects, I'd read all his books, we met for lunch one time, you know, he told me that he was looking for a research assistant, I volunteered, you know, he gave me a trial project, and then I did good on that, then he gave me another project. And then, you know, over five or six years, I proved myself, I it could work. It, it was an organic growing process. There was never, I think some people go, I need to find a mentor. And that's not really how it works. What you need is mentoring. And that can come from lots of different sources and people. And it, it usually evolves slowly. And so I, I think the other part is when you begin to show potential or talent, it doesn't like, like, if you're totally clueless and you don't know anything and you have no marketable skills of any kind, you're not going to find a mentor. In some ways, it's a it's inherently unfair. The people who need mentoring the most get it the least, but that's how it works. Sheryl Sandberg, you know, she says, uh, it's not find a mentor and you will do well, do well and a mentor will find you. And that's, that's how it happens. You've got to put in the work show the potential, and then people will be willing to invest in you. Back to Perennial Seller, tell me a little bit about how do you approach the creative process? Well, I think about the audience a lot. I think about who am I making this for? I think about, you know, what is this project going to do? You know, what am I trying to accomplish? What does success look like on this project? And I, you know, it's, it's a hell of a lot of work too. I mean, I, I, when I sold perennial seller in 2000, early 2015, I thought it would take a few months and here it is coming out in, you know, late 2017. So it took over, you know, over two years and, and, and not like two years of sporadic work, but two years of almost every day making it a little bit better. So I think people think that books or movies or whatever are these like sort of flashes of inspiration or flurries of activity when it's really it's it's, you know, you have an idea and you test that idea. You start to to think that there's some promise to it and then you just work on it every single day and it gets point zero one percent better each time you touch it. And these improvements compound and and at the end probably much later than you think it's eventually finished and, and you have it. How do you go about testing your ideas? But I say like every article should be, uh, every, every book should be an article before it's a book. Every, uh, article should be a dinner conversation before it's, a uh, before it's an article. I, I think you've got to interact with people who are at least representative of your audience and see, you know, is there potential? Is there, a flash or a glint of uh, intrigue in their eyes when they when they hear it, and if there's not, then you got to keep tweaking the idea until you get there. So, give give me a specific example. Like, how did the perennial seller, for example, evolve from from a dinner conversation into an article into eventually a book? 
I mean, yeah, it's funny. I, my editor came to my wedding and she was like, hey, you know, you should do a book on book marketing. And I thought that was interesting. And we, uh, I exported, I, I wrote a book proposal and it sold. So there was some interest, right? Obviously, or they wouldn't have bought it. And then I started talking to people about the book and I found, you know, I only, most of the people I know are not authors. So the idea of a book about book marketing it kept falling flat. Um, and then I realized too, that a lot of the strategies that I was going to talk about would be out of date very soon. And so I pivoted towards generally, how do you make anything that lasts and then, or how do you market anything that lasts? And then most of that marketing actually has to do with what the product is itself. So then it was really how you make and market anything that lasts. And then obviously I had to sit down and write it. And there are different sections that I talked to people about. But, you know, it, it evolved from this suggestion about one topic to being a full pay, you know, a full fledged book of, I don't know, 50 or 60,000 words, maybe more about a totally different thing. And that that wouldn't have happened if I just written the book. Let's say I'd known that my publisher would publish anything that I wrote. So I would have thrown together a first draft about, you know, book marketing, and then it would have been published and it would have been much worse and it would have had much less chance of success had I not had these conversations. And if had I not got pushback from the people that I did talk to it, talk to it about. So for somebody who's listening, you know, how, how would you recommend that they think about finding a market or an audience for their ideas or for the sort of concept that they have around creating something? Well, I would think, you know, what, what are problems that people have that need solutions? I think that, you know, far too much creative work is a solution in search of a problem when really it's got to be the other way around. You know, what's a problem that people have? What is a, you know, the Obstacles Away is a book about philosophy because that's what I'm interested in, but it's actually a book about how to overcome obstacles because that's what other people are interested in, right? And the two come together. So you, you have to find a problem to solve and the deeper and more perennial the problem and the better your solution, the more likely you are to create something that's going to endure and that's going to be, you know, hopefully financially lucrative as well. And how do we, you know, how, how do you approach digging in and really discovering kind of what those problems are or, how, you know, finding people that, you know, kind of unearthing what the challenges they have that you could maybe help talk to or address? To me, it's kind of obvious. I mean, what are problems you have in your own life that other people share? What are problems that people in your life seem to talk about? What are the things that you wish you'd known when you were younger? What's the thing that you went through that you had to white knuckle that you wish that there had been solutions for? You know, what are what are the things that you're experiencing in your life? I mean, you're not pulling up a phone book and trying to call people and go, what are some problems that you have? But you're you're looking for resistance and difficulty that other people have accepted or have put up with that there might be a solution to. What did people sing before there was the song Happy Birthday? What book did people read before what to expect when you're expecting? You know, what? where did people go eat when they would get hung over on the weekends? And, you know, before there was brunch spots, you know, wh what are needs that people have to which there are currently no solutions? Um, and then your work is, is, is presented as an alternative to the status quo. So if you were to have to kind of start from scratch today, if you had no existing audience, no relationships, how would you go about building, building an audience or building a platform for yourself? I mean, look, I, I remember when I did that. So it, it's not like, uh, you know, I wasn't gifted this platform. I, I remember in 2008 or 2009, I, I wanted to be an author and I knew I would write a book someday, but I didn't have any way to tell people about it. So I started an email list where I recommended books to people thinking that, you know, one day I might be able to recommend one of my own books. And, you know, that list started with like 50 people that mostly friends. 
And I sent the email out last night about perennial seller to 81, almost 82,000 people. So, you know, I already did that list. So when other people start reading lists, I don't think it's a good idea. I think there's competition and I sort of already own that space. But I would think about, you know, what is a skill that I have? What's something that I know about I could I could help people with? Or what, what's, what's the most interesting thing about me that people don't know about that I could lean into? And, and I'd, I'd, I'd go from there. But, I, you know, it wasn't like 30 years ago I started from scratch. It was not that long ago. So, I, I, I mean, I still think I'm very much in the, in the beginning stages of doing the things that we're talking about. And, and in the book, you talk about the importance of, of building a platform. Can you, can you explain that concept a little bit more? Well, I mean, look, what we were just talking about with the, with the list, you know, I could have built a blog, but I built an email list instead. And that email list is now 80,000 people that when I have a book, I email them. And email is probably the single best medium for selling books right now. But if you don't collect your fans and organize them and have direct access to them, like you with your podcast, if you were only dependent on iTunes to get access to your fans and iTunes suddenly decided to charge or iTunes you know, mysteriously shut down or people started hating iTunes. These would all be, you know, really bad problems. These would, if you're an Uber driver, you're dependent on Uber for your living. You don't have a platform. Uber has the platform and that's why they're worth billions of dollars. And so, you know, you want to own your relationship with your customers or your fans as much as possible. Has having children impacted your productivity at all or what have been some of the challenges you've had to overcome in terms of staying on track with how much you create and and market with having kids well i i only have one one son and he's less than 9 months old so you know the vast majority of my creative work came before all this but and it, it's certainly a process that i'm adjusting to now but Look, you got to decide what you want your life to look like. You got to decide what your priorities are, what's important to you, and you got to organize around that. I think one of the reasons that I was comfortable having a kid is that I'd I'd gotten my life to a point where there was freedom to do that, and that had been something that was always very important to me. I didn't want to have to show up at a job. I wanted to have to determine my own schedule. I wanted to be somewhat financially independent as a result of some of my success. I want, so I had changed how I spent money, how I invested money that just changed what I said yes to what I said no to. So it certainly changes your priority. I mean, you know, there's a few hours that I spend in the morning now that before I get started that weren't there before, but, but I think the, the rewards are, are more than worth it. What's one of the, hardest struggles that you've personally had to overcome? You know, I, I kind of hate that question because I think at one, I think it implies, but uh, one, I don't like this idea of these like sort of, you know, the adversity Olympics, right? Like who has gone through this and who has gone through that and let's all compare them. And then I, I, I think the other part of it is that it implies that it's like this thing we do once that determines who we are. To me, the struggle is waking up every day uh, I'm being tired and do you go to work or not? You know, it's there's this fire to put out or that fire to put out or, you know, this employee has this problem and how are you going to deal with it? So to me, the, the struggle is this sort of day to day thing that I focus on. And then at the end of the day, I don't think about it anymore. I don't think about, you know, I, you know, 2014, I wrote about an ego was a hard, a, a very hard year for me. You know, I went through a lot of stuff. But I also don't think about it at all. Part of the reason I wrote it is so I don't have to think about it again, right? Like I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. And part of the stoic optimism is is also realizing the time you spent dwelling on the past, either, you know, negatively or positively, like patting yourself on the back for getting through something, is really just wasted time that's not being directed at what you're going to do next. So that's where I prefer to focus my my energy. I think that's a great point and and a very insightful look at you know, how to think about not only where we focus our attention, but, you know, why it's kind of irrelevant to think about, you know, oh, what, just what's the hardest struggle that you've had to overcome? I think that's really interesting perspective and philosophy. Um, Thank you. So for, for somebody who's listening to this episode that, that maybe wants to start or concretely implement 
some of the ideas we've talked about today, what would kind of be one action or activity you'd give them as a starting point to do that? Well, obviously I wrote the books to be a starting point and I, I see them very much as a starting point, right? Like the, the point of Stoic philosophy is not that it's this thing that you read once and then you know forever and you're this magical wizard. It's something you read and you do. So I journal about it, you know, daily. I, I write about it. I think about it. I read about it. I have conversations about it. You know, the books for me are part of that process. Writing them was me spending an incredible amount of time with some of these ideas. So so I, w- I would I would start with reading and you don't have to read my books. You could read Marcus Aurelius or Seneca or, you know, Tim just put out a free Tim Ferriss just put out a free collection of Seneca's letters that I think are great. Uh, you, know, you could check that out to listen to podcasts about it. I, I would just start by immersing yourself in this information because there's a lot of it out there. And and and, you know, it's done by people who are smarter than you. They're smarter than me. These are people, some of the wisest people who ever lived. And I take advantage of it. And I would echo that as well. I think that, you know, one of the most interesting things about your work, and you you touched on this earlier, is that these ideas are timeless. They've been around for literally thousands of years. And there's a reason. It's because they're they're such effective strategies for dealing with, the you know, as you put it, sort of the everyday struggle of getting up, dealing with setbacks, you know, achieving things in a world that is, is often very difficult. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So where can people find you and your books online? So my website's ryanholiday.net. You can sign up for the reading list we talked about there. You know, all my books are on Amazon. And um, yeah, I think I'm at Ryan Holiday on pretty much every social media platform. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for coming on here, sharing all of your wisdom, ton of great insights about stoicism and creativity. Thank you for having me. This is really cool. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I would love to hear from you and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to successpodcast.com, that's successpodcast.com, and joining our email list. If you want to get all the incredible information we just talked about, links, transcripts, everything in the show, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Go to successpodcast.com and hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. 